If you're a sole practitioner, you're practicing law by yourself, you don't have a business. You've got a job. And we're going to explain why on this episode of... Wait, wait, wait. Dave, look, we need to stop there a second. This is not what we talked about. You don't have a business if you're practicing law as a solo practitioner? Well... I just don't agree with that. All right. So you're a sole practitioner. How, if you stepped away from work tomorrow, what would happen? How much money would come in the door if you decided to take a vacation in the south of France? Or if you get caught up in a big trial, who's bringing in additional work? As a sole practitioner, you don't have a business. You've bought yourself a job. Now, you may make great money, but there isn't a real business there. There just isn't. And we got to talk about that. We got to tell people. We got to explain to them. If they're going out on their own, if they decide they're going to leave a big firm, we've got to help them understand what they're getting into. Well, I'm not going to help them understand because I absolutely disagree with this. My business does not stop simply because I take time off. That's one of the advantages of being a solo practitioner and not working at a big firm. And when I'm in the south of France, I can take my laptop, open it up, and work on the cases that are active and that I need to take care of while I'm Yeah, away. that's real or, healthy. You know, yeah, you're in the south of France. You're <laughs> eating cheese and sipping some wine or whatever people do in the south of France. And you're going to open your laptop and you're going to file a motion for summary judgment or you're going to respond to an emergency injunction or you're going to handle an order to show cause while you're on your boat in the south of France with your husband sitting there like this while you do it. That's not a business. That's a job, my friend. That's what that is. I'm not leaving for vacation if I know there's a possibility I have an injunction hearing coming up. That's different. But yes, yeah, a motion for summary judgment is something that would be far, filed far in advance. I think this is all manageable, Dave. So I got to tell you. Just don't um, agree. <laughs> so I, I just can't. Um, I'm kind of a little surprised because you're usually the most rational person I know. And we get along famously. We really get along very well. I can't believe we disagree on this, especially because it's just so obvious and I'm so right. So I think. <laughs> that suggests my position is irrational, which it is not, to be clear. My position is the correct one. Yours is not. All right. So here's what here's what we need to do. Um, I have a great friend. Her name is Amy Mariani. You know her, too. Uh, she and I, I have been friends for a while. She gives great advice. And this is what she does for a living. She helps people settle disagreements. I think what we need to do is we need to bring Amy in and we need to let her hear this whole argument and... I think we can convince her to tell us who's right and who's wrong. You know, she usually brings people together and gets people to agree on things. But in this case, let's twist her arm a little bit and see if she can help us figure out who's right and who's wrong. Are you okay with that? Can we, can we have Amy come in to try and settle this? Absolutely. Let's bring her in. Hopefully she can talk some sense into you. All right. Oh, geez. Here we go. All right, Amy, welcome to the show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is my friend Amy Mariani. She's a mediator and an arbitrator, actually. She's added arbitration to her practice now. Amy, thank you for joining us today. I'm sorry that, um, that we have to bring you in under these circumstances. I don't know what's going on with Nicola. I'm not sure if Maybe she didn't get a good workout in in the gym this morning. She gets a little cranky if she doesn't get a good workout in. So I'm not sure what's going on with Nicola today, but I need you to help me talk some sense into her. Before we do that, because uh, the folks who are, who are with us, um, they may not know who you are, 
why don't we start by talking about um, what you do. Let's talk about what a mediator is and what a mediator does. And then you can tell us a little bit about uh, the new area you've added to your practice arbitration. And we'll talk a little bit about your background and then you can kind of straighten Nicole out. So tell us who you are and what you do. <laughs> well, Dave, I've got to walk you back just a little bit because a mediator and an arbitrator doesn't necessarily tell somebody if they're right or wrong. What they do is they serve as a neutral party uh, in mediation. What I do is I help the parties reach their own agreement. In arbitration, I ultimately do make a decision for the parties, but that's based on both the law and the facts. And unless you've picked up a law degree, Dave, I don't think we're going to be arguing the law today. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad I have a neutral person here to be on my side and to straighten Nicola out because this is just one of those things where I don't need a law degree. And be on your side. Wait a minute. See, if she's, she's, she's neutral, then she's not on anyone's side. Uh, that's right. She's, she's Amy knows that. I don't have to explain she's that She's neutral. <laughs> she's neutral. All right. So, Amy, go ahead. Tell us about your background. So to get into this, you practice law first, right? I did. I practiced law for uh, over 20 years. I still have an active law license. I just don't represent clients anymore. So I tried cases in employment, personal injury, and business disputes, mostly for, in the last 10 years of my career, Fortune 250 companies. Before that, for a variety of individuals and smaller businesses. Uh, but it was terrific fun. Uh, but I just decided that I wanted a little bit more flexibility in my travel plans. Uh, and in the way I was living my life. So I switched over to mediation in 2016 on a full-time basis, and I've added arbitration in the past couple of years as a really active part of my practice as well. Yeah, what's the difference between mediation and arbitration, Amy? Arbitration basically allows the parties to come to their own agreement, uh, and where parties cannot agree and need uh, someone else to make the decision, arbitration is essentially a private court system. So you will choose a, a judge or you will have a private judge appointed for you, and that person will act very much in the same way that a judge would in a regular uh, court proceeding. The difference is the rules of evidence tend to be a little bit more relaxed because usually you've got a lawyer who is serving as um, as the decision maker, and it's a little it's a little bit more sophisticated practice in many instances. So rules of evidence can be a little bit more relaxed, and the other thing is it's usually much much faster, sometimes cheaper as well. That's great. Okay, so uh, Nikki G, if you would like to begin your I don't know what you lawyers call wadir of Amy to make sure she's qualified <laughs> to tell you that you're wrong here. Go ahead. What questions do you have for Amy? Hey, Nikki G, did you know you can also get our show as an audio podcast? Of course, I know you can get the show as an audio podcast. I'm on it. But does our audience? I don't know. So those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search up the Inside BS Show with The Godfather and Nikki G, and you'll find us right there. Click the follow button so that you never miss a show. Now, there's a couple of reasons why you're going to want to do that. Nikki G, tell them what the first reason is. You get to ask us questions. That is exclusive to our podcast listeners. Yeah, we only answer listener questions on the audio version of the podcast. We don't do it on video. So if you want to hear what everyone's thinking, or if you want to ask us a question, you got to download the audio podcast. The second reason, and my favorite reason, is because you can take us with you. You can have a little Nikki G in your pocket while you're working out in the gym, washing the dishes, or walking the dog. 
I love me some Nikki G in my pocket when I'm walking the dogs. I don't know about you, Nicola, but that's one of my favorite things to do. Absolutely. Take us with you. After you watch this episode here on YouTube, go to wherever you get your podcast, click the follow button so we can go with you on your journey and you can ask us questions. We will see you or more like hear you there. So Amy, you're based in Massachusetts, is that right? That's right. Is your practice limited to Massachusetts or do you practice in other jurisdictions? Uh, I'm licensed in Massachusetts. I have an inactive license in Maine, but that's as in my practice as a lawyer. As an uh, arbitrator and a mediator, I can handle cases that arise just about anywhere. There are a few exceptions. So certain states like your own state of Florida uh, do have requirements that um, certain people be on certain panels that are administered by the courts in, uh, in order to handle particular cases. But otherwise, uh, unless there's a court prohibition of that kind, I can practice in just about any jurisdiction. That's great. You mentioned that you, so you practiced law before you opened your mediation practice. So tell us, what's the difference between having a law practice and a mediation practice? There are two big distinctions, I think. The first is, who are your clients? Most of the time I'm getting my work from other lawyers, so my networking now involves networking with a tremendous amount of other lawyers. Uh, it's true that, that lawyers get cases from other lawyers as well, but as a mediator that's almost my exclusive source. Prior to that I was also um, you know, working with businesses and doing things like that. So that's one big distinction. The second is really that uh, I run my own show entirely in terms of planning my time, planning my schedule, all of that. When I had a litigation practice, well, the courts, and, and this does go to Dave's point, the courts do have an influence on what your schedule and calendar look like. I would agree with that as someone who practices within the court system. <laughs> so what is something you really enjoy about mediation that led you to it? I love the ability to help people put problems behind them and move on. It, it, and the same is true for arbitration. Basically, anytime you're involved in litigation, anytime you have a major conflict on your hands, you're carrying around the burden of that conflict for months and sometimes years. It's expensive, it's stressful, and it's time consuming. So helping people to sort of get that out of their life and be able to move on and move forward is a huge, huge blessing. So Amy, you've given me great advice over the years. Uh, you're you're excellent at that. In fact, I you know I routinely call you when I when I have issues in my business, when I have issues with other people, uh, because you're such a good counselor. Do you miss um, kind of giving advice to clients? Do you miss that aspect of the practice of law? I really don't, because in some ways I still do that. I just do it differently. What I do now is instead of saying to a client, "You really need to do this." is I explore options with both parties in a mediation. So instead of saying you need to do this, I will say, okay, let's explore what the options are and let's talk about what the risks and benefits of this option are, the risks and benefits of this option, the risk and benefit of that option. So I'm really doing the same thing. I'm just using different language to communicate the same information. What's the most difficult thing about, <laughs> about being a mediator? What's the hardest thing? Oh, the hardest thing, now, and it, it was different 10 years ago when I first started mediating, the hardest thing now is hitting that internal pause button for myself to just sort of process information and make sure that when it comes back out to the other side, it's coming out in a truly neutral way. 
that it doesn't have inflections of um, the other side. And it's, it, I'm communicating it in a way that makes sure whoever I'm talking to hears it best. 10 years ago, when I first started mediating, it was not thinking like a lawyer all the time because that's a really hard skill to break. Oh man, you don't have to tell me. My partner's a lawyer and that thinking like a lawyer, it screws you up from a business perspective every single time. So let me ask you this, right? I, um, I work with a lot of lawyers. Uh, you and I have had a couple of drinks together. I know the administrative burden of running a law practice. Is it different? Is the administrative burden of being a mediator, like the actual blocking and tackling of having your practice, is it different? Is it easier? Because this is the one thing like lawyers want to pull their hair out about from from my experience. You know, they didn't go to law school to fill out paperwork and, you know, do payroll and all that stuff. Is it easier for you being a mediator than it is running a law practice? Well, when I had a law practice, I always had uh, somebody in the CEO or CFO function, so I didn't really have to worry about a lot of that. But what I can tell you is I work for my, I, I do all my work on my own, and in talking to people who are true solos and do not have any employees, um, there are some differences. I don't have to do billing in the same way that lawyers do. So I do not have any hourly billing that must get out on the 31st or 1st of the month. I instead bill on a per project basis and um, basically as soon as the case comes in, I'm sending out invoices to both sides. If both sides don't pay them, I don't do the work. So that definitely streamlines collections, it streamlines a whole bunch of administrative stuff. If you have good policies and procedures in place, and you have uh, really good systems in place, calendaring systems, billing systems, all of those kinds of things. It's not that challenging to run your own mediation practice. You hear that? Huh? What do you think? <laughs> I think there's a lot of value to that. So I have to ask a few questions since we have you here. I know you have experience mediating business disputes. So I'm really interested to ask you a few things in particular, Amy. And the first one is, you get these cases with parties that are just, they're already coming into the room, it's contentious, you know they've been litigating for a while in this case, and you're in a tough spot. How do you motivate them to reach an agreement where you really think this ought to resolve, but they're just going head to head and preventing themselves from being able to do that? That's a really great question. And I get curious because if I get curious about what their primary motivations are, and sometimes that requires diving deeper than just asking them, hey, what's most important to you? Uh, because generally they'll, they'll say, oh, you know, I want the best deal possible. Well, what is the best deal possible? Um, you need to sort of dive deeper than that initial response that they give you. Once you've found out what their motivation is, you can then start working with both parties to see what solutions potentially meet all of their objectives. And usually, not always, but usually there are situations that you can create that do meet everyone's objectives. So if I get somebody coming in saying, um, I need to be right. Well, that, that <laughs> falls into <laughs> power, punishment, and principle. <laughs> if it's truly a matter of principle, then we have a problem. But if you dive deeper with most people, principle's only one among many motivations. And if you show them that they're going to spend five years, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, 
and tremendous amounts of stress dealing with this particular issue, uh, principle may not matter quite as much as they think it does. So what about the circumstances where you get them so far, and I, I've had these cases, and you're, you're, you've got a gap left, and you just have one side who will not budge to get there. How do you push that side to get to the finish line? Two different ways that I like to handle that. The first is for certain people, they need, to, they need time to think. They cannot make good decisions under duress. So in those circumstances, if I really sense that someone has that hesitancy problem, I may suggest we take a pause and that I talk to them again 24 hours later or 12 hours later or something along those lines. Brief pause just to allow them some space to breathe and process. Oftentimes they'll come back and say, yeah, I've thought about it and, and this makes sense, but they can't make that decision in the instant. They just have that freeze instinct. Uh, and they, they cannot make a good decision in, in that instant. The other thing that I will often do is uh, I will suggest to the parties that if they're really stuck, uh, we start going through the what ifs again. And we'll go through, well, if you don't settle, what's the next thing that happens? And the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And the dollars add up, and the time adds up, and all of those factors that were important to driving them to that very number that we're at uh, rise up again and they realize, you know, that extra 25 or 10 or $15,000 may not be worth it because I can usually show them how it isn't worth it to their bottom line, how it isn't worth it to their health uh, or their well-being. And how about the ones where you have the really inflamed personalities, right? Like they're, they're just very emotional. I mean, there are a lot of business disputes are, especially if you have a partnership mm -hmm. dispute. And now that's being mediated, you have a lot of personal tensions that are behind those positions. So how do you diffuse that? I call those business divorces because the level of emotion there is identical to the level of emotion that you will find in the dissolution of most marriages. I've done some work in both areas and the emotions burn just as hot in the business side of things. Uh, particularly if it's a family relationship, those get really nasty. What I like to do is break things up into chunks. So I will say, okay, we've got these 10 or 15 issues to resolve. And I will make a list of them and I will look at them and go, this one's gonna be pretty easy or this one should be pretty easy. Sometimes I'm not right about in my guess. Uh, and then we'll start with the ones that seem like low hanging fruit. And we will start reaching agreement on issue one, then issue two, then issue three, issue four, we start building momentum. And all of a sudden issues 11 through 15 um, seem achievable because they've already worked hard on issues one through 10. They've reached resolution on those things. They've got the momentum and they've worked so hard they don't want to let go of a potential agreement. So they're invested in the process and that makes a real difference. So Amy, you have a lot of experience doing this and it shows and it would be really fun to watch you in action. Would you be willing to try to resolve this disagreement that Dave and I are having here today for our audience? Well, we can certainly do what's called a med-arb, uh, mediation that flows into arbitration if I can't get the two of you to agree, but I'm more than happy to help. So if we're gonna do this right here in front of everybody, Nikki G, what would you say if I told you we should make it a little interesting? How about a little how about a little wager? What would you say to that? 
Okay, I'm open to a wager. What kind of All wager? Right, so <laughs> there was a show not too long ago, actually in our first week that came out, where you talked about wearing a bunny suit. So, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. You're <laughs> no, not the doing one that. <laughs> who wants to get this resolved. So if Amy thinks that I'm right, or if Amy, through her skills and powers, is able to convince you that I'm right, you admit that I'm right, on a show coming up in the next couple of days, you have to wear the bunny suit. And if I'm wrong, or if Amy is able to convince me to see your point of view, I don't know, I guess I'll wear, I'll, I'll, what's like the goofiest thing I could wear? I'll wear I'll wear a chicken suit and I'll walk around with a sign that says whatever you want. I'll put on the chicken suit and I'll walk around with a sign that says whatever you want it to say. What do you think? Full chicken suit, bright yellow. Full chicken suit, feet. I'll have feet too. With a sign. Feeties. I'll have, with a, feet. I'll have a, like a the cluck cluck thing at the top, whatever that is. The, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, 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 okay. You know what? Yes, let's do it. All right, I have to step in here and make sure I'm checking my own um, biases here and my own desire to see Dave in a chicken suit, so. Trust me, the visual of Nicola in the bunny suit is far better oh, for everyone okay. concerned, okay? So I'm not trying to, you know, tell you to make it fair, but nobody <laughs> wants to see me in a chicken suit. Everybody wants to see oh, Nicola yes, in a bunny suit. <laughs> Facts. All right. So ground rules. Here's what we're going to do. Um, each of you is going to have two minutes to give me five reasons why your position is uh, validated. And then we're going to have a brief discussion about those points and see whether or not we can reach some resolution. If not, I will make a ruling and uh, we will have either a chicken suit or a bunny suit on an episode coming up. All right, I think that's fair. <laughs> I think it's fair too. Okay. All right, who goes first? Dave, you started the trouble, so why don't you take it away? Ah, uh, so I object right there. That's absolute <laughs> crap. You think that I started the trouble. This is absolutely not gonna go my way, so Let I want that recorded. I want Let that recorded on the record. That. I want that recorded on the record so that if there's an appeal, we have it for later. Right. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> Appeal rights are limited in arbitration, so. Oh, man. This is this is already not going my way. So here we go. This was your suggestion coming here. Right, start the clock. So for me, you know, point number one for this being a job and not being a real business is that if you don't work, there is no revenue, there is no income. The point of a business is to produce profit for the shareholders. There's nothing in there that says that the practitioner of the business must be the one to produce the profit. In fact, some of the best businesses are run without the participation of the founder, without the participation of the person who's the principal in the business. So point number one is that if you're not there working in your business as a sole practitioner, you don't have a business. You basically have bought yourself, in my opinion, a very expensive job because law school, it ain't cheap. Point number two, the best businesses have multiple revenue streams. If you're a sole practitioner, there's one revenue stream. You, working for Mr. Slate, 
on the rock pile, breaking rocks. If you're not doing it, there's no revenue stream. You got nothing else going on. You're a sole practitioner. You're not making money off of anybody else. There's no product or service to be sold without you. One revenue stream, no business. Point number three, you bill by the hour. You know who else bills by the hour? Babysitters, plumbers, massage therapists, and people in nefarious, need I say, the oldest occupation, okay? If you bill by the hour, you do not have a business. People who get paid by the hour are people who work in jobs. Point number four, your exit strategy. It's death. That's it. If you decide to leave the practice of law, there is no business after that. The only way you get out is when they carry you out. I mean, and I, I got to tell you, point number five is the, the simple fact that if you ever wanted to take a step away and decide to sell what you've created, there's, there's no equity. Because if you're not doing what you do, there's nothing to sell. Those are my five points. I mean, I didn't even need the full minutes. That's what you got. <laughs> so, Nicola, I'd like to hear your thoughts about Dave's uh, positions, particularly points one, two, and five, which involve you're not there, you're not doing the work, and uh, so how is there anything left if you're not physically billing the time, putting in the hours, and doing the work? Sure. So let me let me start with the you're not there. So just because you're a solo practitioner does not mean the business ends. You can also have you have a paralegal, you can have a legal assistant. You said you're only one attorney. It doesn't mean you don't have other people who are assisting you with your work. Next, a even a solo practitioner has a law firm that is set up as a business entity, like all other businesses. That is the they have similarity in their structure. Okay. If you're going to get thrown off by me making faces, we can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> that makes them a business. When you entered into the solo practitioner position, you presumably had some type of business plan, right? You had to decide revenue, expenses. What is my business going to look like? Who are going to be my clients? Who am I going to target? That all is inherent to running a business. You have operations, you have IT, you have billing. Even if you are just yourself, you still have those functions, just like a law firm, just like a business does. You've also performed a market analysis. You have competitors, you know who they are, you know what service you're going to provide compared to what they're going to provide and how you're going to distinguish yourself. Finally, there is an exit strategy for solo practitioners. Why? We are required to make sure that there is someone appointed to take over our practice in the event we can no longer practice law or that something happens, should happen to us as lawyers while we're practicing. That's it? It's a business. <laughs> so, That's all I need. It's a business. So Dave, what are your thoughts about uh, what Nicola had to say? Um, you know, I, I'll tell you, I think... I, I love Nicola to death, but that that was 
that was not a very compelling argument. I have IT, therefore I'm a business. What is that? You have operations. What is you that? You have functions, the core functions of a business. You got a kid in core a garage with any a business. computer. You got a kid in a garage with You're a computer. You're focused on billable hours. That is one type of revenue stream. Wait, let's go back to that billable hour point. Because that's a sticking point for you, right? You hate that law firms oh, some I absolutely are focused on billable that. hour, yeah. right? Not all law firms bill by the hour. There are solo practitioners as well who oftentimes will take a project on a fee basis. That's the beauty of being a smaller shop is you have flexibility in your fee structure. So, so you don't have to bill out. So hang on. Uh, Dave, permission, that, uh, to, permission to question the witness here. How <laughs> actually, do you Dave bill? Can, how do you bill, Nicola? This is how not about bill? whether my firm is a business. How do you bill your this clients? This is not a question about my firm. So, Dave, let's there's let's flexibility take, in billing structure for solo. Let's take a step back. If um, if there's a hypothetical law firm that is uh, a solo law firm and they are billing on a project by project basis as opposed to an hourly basis, they have a succession plan in place. Uh, and they have um, all of the corporate structure, all of the corporate organization in place. Would you view that as a business or would you view that as not a business, as a job? If, can you remove, here's the, the way I respond to that is, can you remove that principle from that firm and have that firm continue to be a going concern? Can you remove that person? That person gets hit by a bus. Does that firm continue on? If you cannot remove that person, again, we're talking about sole practitioner. If you cannot remove that person from the business and the business fails, if that person goes away, that's a job. That's not a business. If, if you can, then you know maybe you can make a cogent argument that this is a going concern, this is a business. But if that person is extracted from the business, look, I work with Nicola, she's fantastic. But I'm not working with Schmecky the lawyer if Nicola gets hit by a bus. I'm going to go find another person to work with who I, who I can work with. There'll be nobody that I can work with as well as Nicola. But I'll go find somebody who's like 80% of Nicola. I'm not going to work with Schmecky the lawyer just because Nicola has in her succession plan that Schmecky takes over. So what if Nicola has introduced you to Schmecky and you find that Schmecky is 80, 85, 90% as effective as Nicola? Uh, would that, in your view, create a valid business succession plan for Nicola? Well, then again, so if Schmecky's an employee of Nicola's, where we're talking about something that is different than being a sole practitioner. I open the show, my statement when I open the show, and we can, we can rewind this and go back and say it and see it again. I open the show by saying, if you're a sole practitioner, you're a lawyer working on your own, you don't have a business, you got a job. And we're going to talk about that today. That's how I open the show today. So if Nicola brings in an army of Schmeckies and she trains the Schmeckies to be just as good as she is or 80 percent as good as she is, and then she steps away and retires to the south of France, that's fine. If the work can continue on, then the business is a going concern. And then she may actually have an entity that she can sell there. So, yes, if Nicola has an army of Schmeckies, she has a business that she can potentially sell. So but, what if what if Schmecky is not an employee, but has Schmecky's own practice and Nicola's practice simply transitions to Schmecky's practice should Nicola get hit by a bus? Is that a business? It's not. a So there's I gave you four criteria, right? The Schmecky criteria is just one. 
of the four of the four criteria. So Nicola doesn't necessarily have a standalone going concern if there's no if there's no system process practice in place with an army of Schmeckies who you know have been trained. I mean, candidly, if Schmecky comes out of the woodwork and I've never met Schmecky and and he's just somebody who Nicola has pointed to and says is this is my successor. Uh, candidly, I probably wouldn't accept that as a client. And if a client wouldn't accept it, I don't know that you have a real business there. Okay, so let's turn over to people other than Schmecky. And this is a question for both Nicola and Dave. And that is, um, can work get done? And can work be um, profitable by persons other than the lawyer in the law firm? Because that would seem, Dave, to get at your question of, is there profitability? with or without the um, without without the attorney being involved. So, Nicola, what are your thoughts there? My thoughts are yes, that that can still the law firm can still operate and still be profitable. So the one kind of assumption over here with, with the Schmecky discussion was that Schmecky is not as great. Right. But a point I made in my five point argument is that we have to appoint a successor as a solo practitioner. You are required to appoint somebody to take over your business. You know the person you're working with, Dave, that's me, right? If I'm your lawyer, would you trust who I would choose to take over my practice? You would think if you have value in that person's relationship, then you know they're going to choose somebody who's going to be excellent to run that practice and that they think can handle it. Uh, listen, so I would trust any I would trust any advice you gave me if you told me that Schmecky was the best person to work with me because I trust you. I would trust you and I would absolutely give Schmecky a fair shot. Of course I would, because that's why I chose to work with you in the first place. But I don't really understand how that's relevant to this whole argument, because, you know, Schmecky's not an employee. And if Schmecky's not an employee, then Schmecky's not a part of the business. Schmecky is the successor to the business. <laughs> I, you know, it's I'm a little I'm a little concerned because when you were making that argument, you did the thing you do with your lip when you're really upset. And I'm like, oh, boy, <laughs> I think I struck a nerve here. <laughs> so right, Amy, so what are we doing here, Amy? When so, are you going to tell me that I'm right? Well, I, I can't <laughs> tell you you're right. I can't tell you you're wrong either at this juncture. What I want you each to do is to acknowledge the validity of the points with which you agree from the other side. So, Nicola, you did that a little earlier today, and you indicated that there were a couple of points that Dave made that you agreed with. Uh, do you want to oh. explain what those are? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a very good point that he made about, you know, single revenue stream. That's, that's a very compelling point. Not compelling enough to outweigh the other points, but it's a compelling point. Okay. And are there any others that you agree with? When the solo practitioner is not working, that the business is not making money if they have not put something else in place. If there, there are possibilities for additional revenue streams, but if you haven't put that in place, then yes, if the solo practitioner is the primary revenue driver and they're not working, then yes, the business would not continue to make money. Absent some, then there's some exceptions to that, but I think those are two very good points. So it sounds like what you're saying is uh, in a well-run solo practice that has been set up with solid procedures and solid practice mechanisms, additional revenue sources, and a good long-term plan that includes succession, you view that as a business and not just, because you can never say just, a law practice. Is that a fair summary? 
That's a fair summary. Okay. So Dave, having heard that summary of Nicola's position, what are your reactions? So my reaction is specific to Nicola, okay? Because I know how focused Nicola is and I know what a planner she is. I would I, I would put money on the fact that she would have a system and a process in place so that, God forbid, well, I'm not going to say hit by a bus. Let's say she decides that she's checked out one day. You know, one of her clients, she just finally had it with these crazy clients that she has. My word, not hers, right? She's finally had it with them. And she decides that she's had enough. I am completely confident knowing my friend that she would have systems and practices in place so that she could just step away and go sip margaritas on a beach somewhere. And her clients would be taken care of absolutely perfectly fine because that's who Nicola is. But you know, the, the, the caveat to that, Amy, is Nicola's like one in a million. There's no, the lawyers, who are, lawyers who are out there, they have, hard, they have a hard time finding their office every day, right? So I don't know that every lawyer has the same uh, thoroughness and the same um, rigor in their, in their planning. Like she said something, and I made a note actually while, while she was talking. She said something about doing a market analysis. You know what? I've been working with lawyers for 17 years. That's the first time I've ever heard a lawyer use the term market analysis. So do I have confidence that Nicola's got this all figured out? Absolutely, 100%. But Nicola is like one in a million. She's not your typical sole practitioner. So if I were to introduce you to, say, 30 or 40 folks who have the same kind of succession planning and, due, and diligence and um, understanding of market conditions and, and business structures that Nicola has, would you change your mind? <laughs> if you could find 30 or 40 lawyers who have thought like a business person, like Nicola has, and planned out their succession plan, I would buy you a house. <laughs> well, I may have my homework cut out for me this weekend, and I might be, uh, might be house shopping. <laughs> Dave, I regret to inform you that because we found at least one example of a business owner who happens to be a solo practitioner, I think your viewers are going to be in for a chicken soup in the near future. Ah, this is absolute <laughs> crap. Yes. I think this is garbage. <laughs> I absolutely do. This has been rigged from the beginning. I think I made the best argument. I think you're going to find down in the comments, people are going to tell you that I made the best argument. This is absolute garbage. I cannot believe Okay, and it's time to wrap up our show. Thanks so much to Amy Mariana for joining us today and for helping us to resolve our dispute. If you liked our show, please click on another one. We do them every day. Until tomorrow, I'm Nikki G, and he's... The Chicken Man. <laughs> and we'll see you tomorrow.